0: psalm reading is psalm 119 so brace yourselves just kidding we're doing psalm 19. the heavens declare the glory of god the skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day they pour forth speech night after night they reveal knowledge they have no speech they use no words no sound is heard from them yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world in the heavens god has pitched a tent for the sun it is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to their eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless in a sin of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You bow your heads with me and pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this, this evening, this opportunity we have to study the word together, Lord, and thank you for just covering over all of our sins. Thank you for forgiving us when we stumble and showing us that your love covers all, Lord. Uh, we pray that you give us ears to hear tonight, and we're thankful again for being able to study your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Good evening. Um, today we're going to be looking at ex- starting in Exodus 13. I'm really stoked for this. So, uh we will dive right into it. So Exodus 13. Um, and I just want to take a moment for us to consider what's come before. Um, so God's people, God made a promise to the patriarchs that he was gonna make a great nation out of Israel and bless the whole world. They, uh, we've seen God work with them even amidst their sin. And then we saw them actually uh, ended up in Egypt, saved from a famine, but gradually the Egyptians came to enslave them. Uh, they were there for 400 plus years, and now God has heard their cries, has delivered them from Egypt through a series of plagues, killed, uh, killed Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt's firstborn, both man and animal, after m- many warnings, right? Uh, and then we have just seen that the Lord gave a lamb, gave lambs to save his people. There's been like the lamb's blood is put on their, uh, their doorposts. And just incredible to think of that, just to pause to think of like, well, we have a story here, and we as Christians have a story here, which is talking about ancient Israel, but it's also direct application to us that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been given for us. And just thinking about that, the God of the universe chose to, he set this up, you know, thousands of years before Jesus in a way that reveals himself, um, or I guess about 15, 15, 1600 years before Jesus, revealing himself as a spotless lamb, using that, that image that is vulnerable and pure and peaceable. And the idea that the blood of God on our hearts spares us judgment and brings us to freedom and life and, in a sense, is bringing us into the tr- promised land. And we're going to see this, this, the continued parallels that I think are really profound for us as Christians, the continued parallels between our situation as Christians, anybody, Jew or Gentile, to specifically the ancient Jews looking for their, uh, heading for their homeland. So I think sometimes when you, when you hear a story over and over or you grow up in church, the, the danger that can happen is that we end up growing cold to the wonder of it all and even the kind of shocking nature of it. But it's, my hope is that as we read, the Spirit would like open our eyes anew to it and open our eyes, open my eyes to, to the wonder of it. So we have here, um, the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. I just want to pause it right now. Uh, remember, the Lord, whenever you see that all caps, that is a personal name of God, which, uh, which people generally understood to be Yahweh, pronounced Yahweh. But it's so interesting that, that right there, God is saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. It's mine of man and beast. And you know, I think when we're reading that coming from just kind of an autonomy obsessed society, right? It can be you can feel like, whoa, like he's just claiming it's it's his, but I'm mine. I'm, you know, like I belong to me and my stuff belongs to me. But remember like the bible is going to present us the true image of the world and there's ways that that is going to that may feel jarring to us but he is god everything belongs to him he can do whatever he wants and he is good like thinking about whenever you come into anything i've said this before and i'll I'll continue to say this whenever you come into anything in scripture that feels jarring or disconcerting like whoa that's like what that's that's so intense How can that be remember god's character that this is a god who gave his own his the father who gave his own son, God the son, as a sacrifice for our sins with the, you know, the parallel to the Passover lamb, this God who sacrifices himself, he's not claiming just like your mind just to like mess with us or because he's like grabby about things. He's claiming because he is indeed God. And in fact, things being his, being delivered over to him is actually the best way for us to live. The only true way for us to live. It's what we're designed for you know, it, God said explicitly to Pharaoh that Israel was his firstborn son. He said that in Exodus four. Um, and so we'll continue on with this. Uh, something that's interesting here is that that phrase, the first, firstborn in some translations, uh, whatever is the first to open the womb. Just like an oh, interesting way to think of like, it's a different way of us to think about like the firstborn. Like it's the first to open the womb, the first to kind of enter through this, this door of sorts. Um, and we're, told, we're going to be told here again and again to remember. And that's, that's absolutely important. And the, the things that are going to follow in this chapter are specifically related to ways for the Israelites to remember what they've been delivered from, whose they are. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which you swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing of milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. So something I want to just point out here um, is that, one, Something's really interesting is that even right, right at the start of this, this is actually, Jesus himself was presented according to this law, the law about the firstborn. In Luke 2, he's presented the temple according to that. And we see here, what's being set up is we're told, God says at the start, the firstborn is mine, and then talks about remember, which is this this theme that is so important in Scripture because we are so prone to forget. And we'll see the Israelites themselves are prone to forget, and within like two chapters, we're gonna see them seriously forgetting like who God is and what he's brought them through. And that is very much true for ourselves as well. But something that's interesting is that here, we're gonna see that God is giving, it says God told Moses in verse one and two about consecrating the firstborn, and then Moses is speaking to the people here and he's going to specifically give commands to the Israelites for um, for two things, right? One is going to be the Passover celebration, this like not this feast where you're not taking in unleavened uh, bread, and the second thing is going to be uh, more talking more about the firstborn. But what's interesting is there's there's a repeated pattern of the why behind these things, like the purpose of 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 this these these rituals isn't the right word, but. These, um, these practices that the Lord is telling them to do here through Moses is there's in verse eight and in verse 14, you shall tell your son. So it's telling your kid why we do these things. And then in verse nine and verse 16, it's a sign. So again and again, there's this like, importance to doing, you know, I think we in, in the modern West, in ways we can think of like, oh, like uh, religious celebrations are kind of arbitrary. is can kind of be their mindset. Like, oh, it's like a tradition. You, you commemorate, you keep doing this thing because I guess people have been doing it for hundreds of years. And it just feels almost like a, a hoop to, to jump through or it feels like this kind of like it's like, ah, you can, you can do it if you want. You don't have to. It's kind of arbitrary. It feels kind of random. But actually, that's, that's how we can think of it in our kind of secular world. Religious, religious holidays and stuff, they're kind of like add-ons. You can, you can pop on and celebrate as you want in whatever manner you want. But actually, Actually, here we see that the, the rules that the Lord is giving, the practices that He is giving, are intricately tied to helping people remember who they are and who they are in relation to God, who God is. They're, supposed to, they're things that are supposed to be ingrained deeply within us because we are so prone to forgetting. You know, I think of it as, in a sense, like, you know, in, in the New Testament, we're told to keep awake. Uh, multiple times we're to, told to stay awake. And it's like the world is kind of like, if you think of it like the world is kind of like uh, to use like a Chronicles of Narnia kind of kind of metaphor, it's kind of like a witch perpetually like casting a spell, and it's like, oh, do whatever you want. You're your own, and like just kind of this life's kind of it. You can party and like do, do whatever, you, or like you know just need to take life into your own hands, do it your way. Um, you know Frank Sinatra singing, it, I did it my way somewhere, right? There's these these mindsets we can get into, and it's kind of like the spell being cast. And but we need to keep waking up and like r- wake up from this enchantment, this enchantment that ultimately leaves us leaves us miserable in so many ways, right? Um, we're in a society that is so deeply obsessed with our own our, our own autonomy, us being the boss. You know, you think of how many commercials are just like it's all about you, having you know having it your way. I'm not trying to pick on. I think that's Burger King, right? But all this kind of obsession is it's all about you. And yet at the same time, we're miserable. Like you look at our rates of depression and suicide and drug abuse and all these things. We're simultaneously like so invested in ourselves and it's not working. But here, these like religious observances are tied to remembering who we are and worshiping God, the God who saved us, because that's the only way we can be fully human. So with that, um, verse 11, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens a womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So the firstborn males, right, are going to be redeemed with the sacrifice of the Lord. And you see that happening, like for instance, in that, uh, when Jesus is presented at the temple. The donkey, I'm not quite sure why the donkey specifically um, is supposed to be, it, it's, it's clarified, the donkey needs to be redeeming the lamb. I've, I've read that potentially it's because the donkey's just like not eligible for sacrifice, it's like unclean. Um, so God is saying to redeem it. Also, it's a pack animal. It's like super important for people's work. And so perhaps the idea is like, oh well, a donkey is like this such a functional animal that God's actually being like, well, can, you can use this as a as a substitute sacrifice. I'm not quite sure. But we also see here sons are to be redeemed, and child sacrifice is condemned in the Bible, and it's considered a mark of pagan nations and a horror. And if you recall the one famous story in which God actually calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. God stops it. He actually like stops and actually provides a ram, a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. And that is a theme you're gonna see, you see over and over in the Bible is the need for sacrifice and the substitution that is possible for sacrifice. Which v- so clearly, that, like that narrative reaches a, a peak and a resolution and fulfillment in Jesus, in the fact that we deserve to die in some in a sense, right? We deserve our sins. Uh, Deserve condemnation, and yet God willingly sacrifices Himself in order that we might be redeemed. So that is like that. Redemption is a theme you're going to see again and again. So, continuing on, verse 14, and when in time to come, and when in time to come, your son asks you, "What does this mean?" You shall say to him, "By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, to the ho- from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt." both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And I think even there, just the idea of a child asking his father, like, why are we doing that? Like, what's the meaning of this? And I think the tragedy in when people can continue with religious observances, religious rites while their hearts are disconnected for it and they don't understand the reasons for it. The tragedy is in the, like a kid's like, why do we, you know, why do we do this? Wh- why are we doing this thing? It's just like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of like just a religious thing we do. Or it's like, you know, like this is just uh, this is just what our family does. And it's disconnected from its whole purpose, which is this sense of like a very like first person. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. It's just like personal, like, this is why we're doing it, is because of what the Lord did for us. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males. There's just a sense of like, this is my story, a sense of personal identification with the parent understands that is then to be passed on to the kid. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work out with that way, with the way people work, but that's how it's supposed to be. Uh, And then we see here, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And that verse there about uh, a frontlet, which uh, apparently the actual, like, the meaning of that word is somewhat commentators. There's, like, some questions about that. Is that actually referring to a, an Egyptian, um, like, kind of, like, something they would wear that's, like, a, a, some sort of Egyptian practice. But that's actually where the idea of uh, the practice of tefillin come from. Uh, those are, like, the, if you've ever seen, like, orthodox... Jewish communities, people like wrap that, the like black leather band around their arms and there's little bo- black boxes that contain, uh, I believe it's five specific small passages of scripture. I, thi- I think that's it. But anyway, Orthodox Jewish men over 13 uh, oftentimes practice that. This is where that comes from. Uh, and for us, even reading this, I mean, this is, this is like the importance of inscribing who God is and who, he is to, who we are in Him, right? Who He is to us, inscribing that on our hearts. You know, many times in both the, the Old and New Testament, God says that He will write the, His law in our hearts. Hebrew says, which is quoting in turn Jeremiah, for this is the covenant that I, will ma- that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He is a God. We are as people. That's again this 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 sounding note, this thematic note that's going to continue in the chapters we're reading, and indeed throughout the whole Bible. So, the Hebrew the Hebrews here are, they have been blood bought in a sense uh, through the blood of the lambs, if you if you want to think of it that way. Uh, and then so and they've been reminded, okay, here's a practice that is going to be important for you to take on when you enter uh, the land of the Canaanites. And here we see in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So just pausing here briefly, the land of the Philistines, you know, the Philistines have already been mentioned in Genesis, and we are going to hear much more about them as we go on as the Israelites enter Canaan. Um, But I think it's interesting that God says, Lest the people change their minds when they see war. So they could have kind of very quickly entered the land of the Philistines, but God is, knows um, what's in the hearts of men. And, you know, it makes me think of just what Jesus in John 2, there's a point where he's at the Passover feast, which, you know, Passover, that's pretty incredible that we're, there's kind of this link between, um, just this, such a clear link and this continuity between this point, the Exodus, and Jesus' own ministry. But, he says, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. God knows our weakness and our forgetfulness and our duplicity, right? Our sinfulness and just our, our just like <laughs> our feebleness, how easily scared we are, and as we see, as we'll see more of like the Israelites, their experience during the Exodus, it. it very much reinforces, oh yeah, like, lest the people change their minds when they see war. Man, these, the, these people will see, they get, seems like they very easily forget the realities of who God is. But again, that's easy for me to say sitting here right now when I have my own propensity to do that as well. Um, and verse 18 says the Red Sea. So you may have heard kind of, you may have heard of the idea of like, oh, is that actually supposed to be translated the Sea of Reeds? Um, there's kind of different, different takes on that. So the Hebrew is yam suf, um, or possibly soup, I guess, but yam suf. I'm, um, and so suf could mean, apparently, uh, reed or papyrus, and some scholars to take, that, take that to mean that this isn't actually re- referring to the Red Sea, but the Reed Sea, uh, a sea of reeds like a marshy lake. Um, but I want you to take that thought and put a pin on it for a minute, and I'm gonna just say, It's also referred to, uh, and it'll be referred to in the next chapter, as just the sea. So this is clearly, this is not like some small marsh, I think. You can just see that very clear in the text itself. It's not just like a small body of water that the Israelites are kind of wade through. Um, And actually, the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was translated like 2nd, 3rd century BC. um, There won't be a test at the end, I promise. But this may be of interest to you. Uh, The Septuagint translates it as the Red Sea. Um, not the Reed, Reed Sea. There are different words they could have chosen, but they actually said the Red Sea. And that elsewhere in the Bible, it's actually talked about as the Red Sea. Um, so, and in First Kings, Solomon actually built boats in Su- a, a location called Yom Suf, um, which some people have said, maybe it's a flexible term for another location. But in any case, it seems to me that like, it's very clear, this is like deep water. This is not like just this kind of marshy area where it's like shallow. But one, Solomon's building boats. And so it has to be big enough for there to be boats. Solomon's wise. He's not going to build boats in like a three-foot body of water and be like, oh, well, I guess those boats are trash now. Um, and in the New Testament, it says, in Acts and Hebrews, says Red Sea. So this translation is Red Sea. I'm going to be saying re- uh, Red Sea. You know, you can deep dive in on if you want. Um, the actual Red Sea is... I was looking it up and it blew my mind. I didn't really know this. It is huge. I mean, it's like when you look at like the Wikipedia for it, it's got like a picture of like this deep blue, just beautiful water and like sea turtles and coral, like way deeper than I I expected, like almost 10,000 feet at, at points. It stretches between Egypt and Israel and it has traditionally been identified as the sea they crossed. Uh, it connects with, like, the Mediterranean. So it's like there's this big body of water. At the bottom, it connects to another gulf, I believe. But then it kind of goes up through the Suez Canal and connects to the, uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea. And apparently, I don't know how much stock I, I would put in this, but reading it, uh, it came across my radar. I think it was the Encyclopedia Britannica was saying that it has blooms of algae that when they die off, they can actually turn a reddish-brown color, which I don't know if that's the origin of... Of the phrase. It's like an ancient title, Red Sea, uh, but super interesting in any case. And it was important for Egyptian com- commerce. Their boats would go out on it. Um, so what we know for sure is that from the Bible is that this sea was big enough that it had to be impassable by foot. It's not just something that people could kind of like wade through. In fact, it was big enough that horses and chariots could drown in it. So it's not just a mere marshland. It was big enough to be called a sea. and then you, So, we're going to be going to Red Sea. There's some, you know, if you have questions about that, we can talk after, but very interesting. Um, Now, we're going to see something, uh, kind of a... What's so beautiful about the Scripture is just the interlacing uh, elements in the narrative, and we're going to see uh, one coming up right here that harkens back to the end of Genesis. Uh, it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and she'll carry up my bones with you from here. So right at the end of Genesis, uh, Joseph's dying and, uh, or about to die, and made mention specifically of the Exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. So just incredible. they like, oh, and lo and behold, it's happening. If you remember, Genesis ends with a coffin, just like, it's just a very kind of, poignant and heavy ending, a coffin in Egypt. And now that coffin is actually being taken to the Promised Land. Uh, and they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Ethem on the edge of the wilderness. Sukkoth is actually a location that we have been before as readers um, when Jacob, right after he reconciled with Esau, it says he journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Uh, and Sukkoth actually means booths. So um, that's of interest. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So you think like, I mean, it's a pretty incredible thing to think about. These, the Israelites, the, the offspring of this, this people group who originally came from a man who was you know had Given up the possibility of having children, now they have this multitude of offspring, and now they're actually like walking back over. It's kind of like almost like almost feels like perhaps perhaps recapitulation isn't quite the word, but it's it's like this kind of revisiting of the very same places where their their forefathers walked and where these promises were made. The very promises that are now being that are now coming to pass. Um, and that pillar, you know, we see that God's presence is manifest to His people, people visibly guiding them, and as we'll see in the next chapter, uh, pro- protecting them. And I think it's just interesting, I just want to, before we move on from this chapter, just a few things to place in your mind, just to be free-floating there, is that the idea of, one, we talked about unleavened bread, right? So leaven is often used as a, as a metaphor or as a picture of impurity, of, of like uh, pollution, of sin. And God's emphasizing purity here, you can think of it in that sense. Uh, dedication, that the firstborn belongs to the Lord, that we are His. Um, substitution, the redemption of the firstborn. The absolute importance of remembering. And then, think about this. God, God did not say, hey, like, uh, did God did not ask the Israelites to perform a bunch of, like, religious rites, as it were. And then He would rescue them if they, de- if they were, if He decided they were up to snuff. Uh, but rather, God acts to rescue His people. He tells Moses to do specific things, and He has things He tells the Israelites to do, like bring in your, um, bring in your, your oxen, uh, or he, he issues a general thing, bring in your oxen when there's hail. He tells them to perf- perform a sacrifice with a lamb for Passover, right? But God generally, He acts, and now He's calling them to respond. Now He's giving them practices to put into play to remember who they are. So he's a God who takes initiative. They cried out, but he, he saw and he answered and he's taking initiative to rescue them. It's not them just like, they're not, the Israelites didn't fight their way out of Egypt, right? The Israelites didn't have an uprising and kill a bunch of Egyptians and flee. God actually brought them out without them having to spill a drop of blood. Um, and there's a picture, I think, in, in even just the reality of like, as Christians, the whole idea is that we don't do a bunch of good works to earn God's redemption, to earn salvation, but rather we do good works as a response to his already c- accomplished redemption. So for the Israelites, now for us. And now we're gonna look at um, Exodus 14. And I want you to be thinking too about the way that the Bible uses these kind of primal elements like water, like blood, like fire, and it uses again and again uses them in powerful, meaningful ways. It makes me think of the way that Jesus in, his, in the parables he tells, he uses these, like relatable, these relatable examples whether it's like the basics of harvest or of, of a person with some servants, uh, a boss with a vineyard, right, these things which are not just specific to first century Jewish culture, but they're things which have stretched that are broadly relatable with some nuance right we don't live in an agrarian culture, but they're broadly relatable through time they aren't. Co- dependent on a particular piece of technology. It's not like I'm using an example of an iPhone and expecting like, hey, in 3,000 years, people are going to be still using iPhones um, and it should be relatable. It's using images that will actually be, have great utility over time and be relatable through a broad variety of cultures. Um, and so here, even just thinking about water, blood, fire, these like kind of primal elements that everybody understands, every human has encountered those things. In one way or another, right? So, then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-hahirath, between Migdol and the sea, in front of baal You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and they did so interesting here that God already tells Moses what's going to happen, that Pharaoh's actually going to chase you. It's not like Pharaoh starts chasing and it's like, oh, what, what, what's, what's happening? No, nobody set me up for that. God already says it's already part of his plan. God uses opposition and challenges for his glory, our good. And we see that again and again and again, culminating in the cross, right? Like the worst possible act, human beings killing God, so they think. And actually becomes the best possible event in history, God redeeming us from our own sin once for all. And we see again, Pharaoh, that phrase, the hardening of hearts, right? Um, and it's interesting, in Romans, Romans 9, it says, the scripture sa- for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and, so that, my, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So I think there's, there's a mystery there, right? And scripture, doesn't, uh, scripture speaks at times of this, of this hardening, but at the same time, sp- scripture speaks of people having responsibility for their actions, right? So Pharaoh is culpable for his acts and yet God is also sovereign over this. And like, uh, like that phrase uh, Josh used, commandeering, God is using what's happening and he's in control of what happening, what's happening, and he has his will through what is happening in this, this powerful and mysterious way. It says God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Also, um, I just think it is, it is well... If you see here, it's set up that he's go- they're going to go in front of baal They shall encamp facing it by the sea. And so in a sense, this, like, this stage for this confrontation is being set up. God specifically actually tells Moses to lead the Israelites to this point where they're actually kind of going to be, it's going to end up, they're going to seem like they're up against a wall. And there's a purpose to that. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. I think it's also good to remember, even as in, a, in, a, in a verse like this, God it says he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Like, it, God does not, um, God's not messing with people here, and God has no pleasure in just like, oh yeah, just like great, uh, killing, you know, killing Pharaoh. It's not something that God is like delighting in for its own sake, but rather God is using the opposition of human beings to bring about something good and beautiful and true. Also, there's just this level of like, man, it is shocking that they pursued. Numbers 33, um, which <coughs> I believe Ian mentioned this morning, it tells us that there's just like this note and it's like this image that's just like, man, it kind of, when I, I re- reheard it recently in the last few weeks and it really like hit me and stuck with me, says that um, Numbers 33-4 says that the Egyptians were burying their firstborn as the Israelites left. So the day after Passover, the Israelites are taking off, and the Egyptians are literally burying these bodies, you know, that were a result of their, like, st- like, Pharaoh's stiff-necked refusal to let the Israelites go after multiple warnings. And it says that that's after God had struck down the firstborn and after he had executed judgment on Egypt's gods. Um, so, I mean, one, even just think about him executing judgment on Egypt's God. You know, I was thinking about gods. I was thinking about that phrase that you often hear, like, oh, all paths lead to God. And just thinking, well, well God very clearly disagrees strongly, like executing judgment on these false gods. But also, you see just the insanity of sin. Because after, you know, remember the Egyptians, like, a chapter or two ago are, like, were said to, uh, to Pharaoh, like, like, art, like. Look around, Egypt is destroyed, and yet now you see Pharaoh just like doubling down again for like the fifth or sixth time, he's doubling down, just like, okay, they're going to go run after the Israelites. Also, I would imagine it hit them like, oh, who's going to like, where's our massive workforce for our building projects that we are not going to be doing ourselves? It's like, oh yeah, we let them go. Um, So... We have, the Egyptians pursued them, all pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen, and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by uh, P-Hahiroth, in front of baal zephon So, the stage is set for a confrontation, and the stage is set for this incredible climactic scene that is just, even just such a, a huge part of human culture. Even you just think like, man, just like, Echoing through the ages, you think the films you've seen. You know, I think of like the universe. Has anybody here ever been to the Universal Studios, like the tram tour? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, there you go. So that the tram tour, I don't know if they still do it. There's one point where like, you know, you're going through like a Western kind of town. There's like a fake fake flash flood. There's like Jaws, they still do it. There's one point you come to this, this watery area, this water area, this like little lake. And I forget if they play the music from the Ten Commandments, which is a great, great musical theme. But then uh, they have this thing where I don't f- remember honestly how they do it, but the waters part, and you go through. And it's so weird to think like, oh, it's like, it's one, the massive, inestimably huge influence of the Bible, right? Just this, this narrative. And then also thinking about it's so weird to have it like, you know, side by side with like driving through like the uh, – uh, oh man, the sets for the Grinch or something like that. It's, it's so weird. And the w- weird the way culture can just like put these things cheek by jowl that they like do not belong together. But something that's super interesting, and I, w- I, w- I want to talk more about this in a minute, but or in a few minutes. But just think about that, like, man, what a massive effect. We are talking right now about this event that happened uh, 3,000 plus years ago. We are still talking about it we are still talking about the way that God got glory over Pharaoh and rescued his people, which there's, there's something profound in that. Um, but let's see here. We, uh, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So they, they look up and they see, and just imagine on the horizon, like you've got the sea behind you, presumably, and you're looking up and on the horizon, you see that, you know, like that shimmering when you can't quite see what's going on at the edge. And then it's like, oh, that's actually like a horde of the Egyptian army with chariots. Um, They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So... You know, you think of the Egyptian, like the, the Israelites have gone from this sense of celebration um, and just like we, we left Egypt with all these treasures with us. And now they see Pharaoh coming and immediately they're like, see, I told you we wanted to stay in Egypt. It would have been better, been better for us to die, uh, to, to eventually die there, I guess, in old age or out of, because of slavery, uh, but have food as opposed to die out here in the wilderness. And what a like, what an outrageous accusation. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? It's just, just wild. Um, But, uh, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. Fear not, that's one of the most repeated commands in scripture, fear not, do not fear. And I want you to remember too, when they're freaking out here, this is, they still have that pillar of cloud and fire, right? So there's like this visible manifestation of God's presence. And they've just seen all these miracles and plagues. They've been led out of Egypt, like just in this just so obviously supernatural, unambiguously supernatural fear, uh, in supernatural way. And yet they still, when fear comes up, that, you know, it's human nature, human frailty to listen to that. And man... How many times do we do that, right? Like God has proven himself faithful in our lives, but then when something daunting comes, immediately the go-to is like, I've been abandoned by God. You know, it's just like that can feel like the easiest emotion to just go towards. Um, so still, they've seen all that and still they doubt. Uh, but again, think of that, what Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." Um, right there, there's like the word see is used multiple times. It says, see the salvation of the Lord, and then it says, the Egyptians who you see today, you will never see again. Just this emphatic sense uh, of, Cl- of Moses' unshakable claim on what God is going to do. And it also recalls, you know, if that rings a bell for when Pharaoh said, uh, get out of my sight, basically, to, to Moses. Uh, I'm the ne- the day, next time you see me, uh, you will die." Something like that. And Moses says, uh, you're right, you'll never see me again. Uh, so then we have uh, this, this incredible verse, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And just this, the powerful reality of God's hand in our lives and God call, doesn't call us to like, lift us, ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but rather is saying, just like your job here is to trust him to stand by the Red Sea and trust Him. You know, you think of that verse, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. So, Psalm 46, too, that's a beautiful picture of this. Like, if, if, if you want to put a little tab for yourself, there's a picture of like when the water rises and things appear over, just overwhelming, trusting in the Lord to act. And that's the gospel, right? Like, overwhelmed by even just the reality of our situation or a conviction of sin, it's just like trusting God and not ourselves. Trust. So, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff. Remember, that's the same staff that miracles have been done through. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." So and again and again, God is emphasizing, one, that uh, they, for the Israelites to trust, and two, that he is going to come through. They can trust him, they can trust him. And I think also there's a sense in which you see Moses, how he, I think you can see how he's grown as a leader. Think about his initial call, right? He's like, please don't send me, send somebody else. I can't speak well. Like there's initially that, and then you see the, and then like he he talks to Pharaoh. He, you know, there's the initial sense of like dejection. He feels like, oh, this is, this is failing. And he talks to God about it, but you see him strengthening, I think, and becoming more and more confident and secure in who the Lord is and his Lord's like, the Lord's call in his life as a leader. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. It's a beautiful thing to see. The picture of, I was just thinking about this today. Like. So many national heroes, right, are defined by just like their impregnable strength, like right, like they are just, just. You think of just like action heroes. So many of them are defined by their relentlessness and their just like grim determination. And Moses is this picture of this uh, more than one nation's leader now like this global leader, and he is defined by his reliance on God and his trust in God. And in fact, he's like he speaks very freely and openly of his own fears. You know, like, this is written, this is, right, like, Christian tradition holds it like, oh, this, and Jewish tradition holds it, these books are written by Moses. It says in the Bible, these books are written by Moses. And Moses himself is writing about his weakness, writing about his fear, writing about the ways in which he, like, was just frustrated with the people of Israel or just just felt like, "Ah, I can't do this. Great power in humility. Uh, It's just even interesting the contrast between, like, what our societal form of just like, b- believe. Just believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself and do it. But God doesn't said that, say that. He says believe in Him, right? Um, self-salvation is not one of, the, one of the projects that's going on in the Bible. Self-salvation is, is fruitless. So, uh, then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And I think there's a beauty, even just as an image, just as a literary image, just envisioning that, like, glowing pillar, whatever that looked like, whether it's just straight flame or it's, like, cloud mixed with flame, I, I don't know. But this luminous picture in the night protecting them of God's protection. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Can you imagine? Oh, the water's a wall on their right hand and their left, like walking through that. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. So now you have the Egyptians again being like, oh, actually, like, uh, uh, the Lord's fighting. I mean, the Lord has very obviously been fighting for them for a long time. Think of the ten plagues. But now you have them again. Um, it almost seems as if in their, their pride and in the hardening of sin, there's like a temporary madness. And they drive into there, and then they, their, their wheels start clogging. It's like, what are we doing? I mean, also, imagine between being between these seas, these two walls of water, like, uh, wh- what are we doing? Uh, sometimes you can read commentators and people trying to make it seem like, well, this is just kind of a natural event, like the wind's blowing and the water's kind of recede for a time, but clearly this is not a natural event, even though you just think like, one, the, these like walls of water, whatever that looked like, but also the fact that the walls of water are, about, are going to recede and drown the Egyptians. It's clearly not supposed, the Bible's not communicating, hey, here's like this natural event that happened. Here is something like the plagues, it, uh, just incredible, and this is God reaching into, as it were, history and doing something abnormal, like like not normal, something supernatural. Um, so this is, uh, I, this is like pre-dawn or around dawn, just so like this kind of big chunk of night between between the uh i forget which watch of the night it says but this is happening between night and dawn right and can you just imagine the, the picture of this like all these israelites walking just like through dry ground in the middle of the sea incredible image being pursued and just trusting the lord in the midst of it and seeing this miracle unfold uh I think also you, water, right? The, like I was saying, kind of like how the Bible uses these different, kind of, this, these different forms of imagery. And you think of water, so Moses was saved by placement into an ark, right? Um, which that itself harkens back to Noah, like humanity being saved through an ark on the water, waters of judgment. Then Noah was saved by placement into an ark. And now, uh, and those same, the waters Noah was in, the waters in the Nile, those were waters that were supposed to like drown Moses, one of God's people, and in the end actually turned into waters of judgment for Egypt, the people attempting to kill him. So now too, we see these waters, like God's making a way for salvation through these people, and it's going, they're going to be waters of judgment for the Egyptians. Also, the Bible actually, in 1 Corinthians, really interesting here, like, speaks of this as like, like a form of baptism. It says, and all were baptized, talks about, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea, so there's something profound happening here that's a picture. You think of it as a pr- picture of baptism and Israel, I, I I think of it as a sense of like Israel kind of coming into its own, becoming its, you know, leaving this place of slavery, and they're like free. And they're like free of these 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 shackles, they're free of what they were enslaved to, like their enemy is defeated. And that is a picture of Christianity, right? Of what baptism is supposed to be, that you are like, you are with Christ and you are You die in a manner when you go under the water. It's supposed to be like being united in a death like his and then raised to new life like his. It's a sign, a signifier of your connection to him. And here too, we see this like there's something very interesting going on with the waters and it being a baptism of sorts. So uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. And think, the Lord, like the Egyptians, what happened with Moses and the Israelite uh, males, right? Pharaoh said, throw them into the Nile. And now the Egyptians are being thrown into the sea here. And also recall, if you will, what happened to the locusts. The plague of locusts, the Lord sent a wind, I believe it says, that blew them into the Nile. So, there's kind of, I think there's a foreshadowing happening there. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh and, uh, that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And it's interesting that there's like multiple times that image, the wall of waters on the right hand their left, is, is repeated. So we have a way of salvation for God's people, which in turn is a way of judgment for those who oppose (coughs) Him. All right, moving on. Uh, Let's see, verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Sober image. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And in his servant Moses. Moving on here, uh, then Moses and the people saying this song to the Lord, saying, "I will sing to the Lord for you." Actually, before I go into it, I just want to say, this is—it's so interesting the way that the Bible will have passages of prose, that then there are these like songs or like poetic passages, and which to us as a literary form is seems somewhat unfamiliar. Like you don't normally read prose, and then it like bursts into a song or into a into a um, kind of poetic section, but in the bible it's that's actually quite a common occurrence and there's something beautiful to that i mean you do find that in you will find that in other obviously like in other older forms of narrative and it's cool because i think for me it's like it can be this we can think of poetry as like freely extra stuff right or songs as like kind of extra stuff like they're not really going to give you that much information prose is like where you get hard data but I actually think that shows our our kind of poverty in a sense um, as readers, because actually poetry is not like the Bible doesn't use poetry. It's like here's some extra stuff; it's optional. Poetry is like woven into the heart, into the 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 material of the Bible in such this this beautiful way. Even you notice how it shifts it sh- shifts seamlessly between prose and poetry, right, uh, and song, because it's all conveying important stuff just in different forms but there's no sense of like, this is important, prose is important, poetry is like down here, but in fact, it's all, it's all given like great, great importance because all these different genres, all these different forms communicate essential truths in beautiful ways, and the way they communicate, it's actually bound up with the form they take, with the form of poetry or a song or whatever it is. So, um, then Moses and the people, of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for his triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. What, what an image, right? Down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow throw your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The, the flood stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw the sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. So the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. So this beautiful, powerful, triumphant song, and so much in it. I'll just want to just point out a few things. Um, one is, then I'm going to take a sip of water, hold on. Horses and chariots, if you notice that being repeated both here and actually in the prose portion, do you think a chariot is a form of like military technology? Kind of like it's it's communicating this high military prowess and the Israelites didn't have it at that point, right? And yet they still win without striking a a blow because the Lord fights for them. So think of that when you hear horsemen and chariots, there's this sense of like, oh, that's like, I think that would be the equivalent of us saying like, you know, tanks or missiles, missile silos or nuclear submarines, whatever like a higher form of technology, a daunting form of technology, which is supposed to freak us out, right? Think of that like, oh, they've got these chariots, but it doesn't matter. The Israelites win without striking a low. Um, also water, right? Water is, uh, we, we talked a little about a little bit, the fact of like thinking of water as um, in terms of baptism and stuff. But you think of like water in Genesis, it's good, but it's without form. And there's sea creatures in it, and sea creatures are used at times as like pictures of evil, right? Or there's this this picture, waters like are daunting, right? There's a sense of like the powerful swirling waters and the kind of the chaos of it. And that is one that we see here is not just quelled by God's hand, but it's actually controlled. He uses it as he sees fit. And you know, surrounding nations around Israel, right? They had these sea gods. But God here is seen as like completely powerful over the sea and every other created reality and he uses it for what he wants to use it for. And then in verse 13 through 18, it's, it's an, uh, anticipating the conquest of Canaan as they're like heading towards a promised land. And you also see verse 13, steadfast love, that, that's chesed, which is this beautiful word which will come up again and again in the Bible for, the, for this steadfast, covenant-keeping, self-giving love. There's different ways to translate it. Uh, kindness, loving kindness, goodness, favor, uh, mercy. But again and again, God reveals himself as, his, as the God of chesed, of steadfast love. It occurs something like 250 times in the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 136 uses it every other line, or it, within every line it ends with, for his steadfast love, chesed, endures forever. And then we see uh, also in verse 17, appears to be just like prophetically speaking of the Israelites' um, that They're going to have a tabernacle and then a temple that will be set up in Jerusalem, which is like a mountain, right? A mountain area. Hundreds of years later, Uh, so this incredible song. This song is an incredible picture of judgment and salvation. And there's parallels even to Revelation, the final judgment when evil is destroyed forever, as if drowned in the sea, never going to never going to rise again. And then there's a uh, there's a second song that comes here for when the horses of Pharaoh with his So there's like a parallel song that she's singing with all these other women. And you think of like, they've got tambourines dancing, presumably on like the shores of the sea. So like what I'm picturing. And one, just a, this beautiful moment of the women there who, you know, these are women who uh, Pharaoh was telling them to toss their babies in the water. They, you know, they were, lived under this great like hundreds of years of oppression. And here they are celebrating God's tangible deliverance. Um, it's cool too. You think of like what national songs often celebrate and not national songs often celebrate either just the nation itself or the human leaders, right? And if they mention God, he's not necessarily the focal point, but Israel's focus, the nation who they are supposed to be, is one whose focal point is the Lord, which we see in the Psalms, right? Like Israel's greatness is not because Israel is inherently great. It's because they're God's people and God is good. And so too for us as Christians, like, any like, we are not supposed to be up like holding ourselves up as pillars of moral rectitude for our own sakes or in our own strength. That is setting yourself up for a fall, and it's also deceiving yourself. But rather, we as a people, as God's people, are good is just in the fact of who we belong to, God, and what He has done for us. Also of interest here is that Miriam was uh, Moses' sister, right? And Moses' sister is mentioned way back at the, at the start of Exodus as seeing seeing Moses, the baby, in that ark being delivered out of the out of waters, right? And now she's seeing Israel being delivered uh, out of waters from death through water, incredible thing. Uh, so they have exited is, uh, Egypt. Um, really quick, does somebody? I don't have a watch up here. Does somebody have the time? Just want to seven. Perfect. Thank you. Um, so briefly, I think it's worth noting, noting that Jesus' life, there's a similarity here that if you recall, and in the start of Matthew, Jesus actually, Herod is, wants to kill Jesus, and Joseph is warned by God in a dream to flee, that Herod's coming for him, and to flee to Egypt. So Joseph flees to Egypt, and then after Herod dies, there's, Joseph has another dream in which the Lord tells him that, like, it, you can go back. It's the people who have sought the child's life are Are gone. And so, Jesus leaves, um, comes out back out of Egypt and returns to Israel. And there's a verse there that's mentioned, out of Egypt I called my son. And it's so interesting that Jesus, so Jesus' life, I think you can think of as like, oh, he's recapitulating. Israel was in the promised land, went back down to Egypt, and then came back up here. So there's just all, the, it's, again, parallels. and if you think of Jesus as this picture of the perfect Israelite, the true Israelite, the faithful and righteous Israelite, he is, his life has these parallels to Israel's national life that are really, really profound, if you think about it. And he himself was baptized in the Jordan, which Israel's is going to actually pass through later in this narrative. And I think you can think, oh, is there like a parallel with the baptism through the Red Sea? I think there's something going on there. So passage out of Egypt is now resolved, and now we're going to be on this journey to Sinai and beyond that, the Promised Land, um, though there will be a great delay due to Israel's sin. And we're actually going to get a, a foreshadowing of that delay right in this chapter, a picture of like, oh, the problems that we're going to be facing. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water." When they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. So Mara means bitter. And actually, that's something if you in the book of Ruth that comes up in a very clear way, like a very powerful image. She says, don't call me Ruth anymore. Call me, I'm sorry, uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because she's bitter. And you see, it's an amazing book if you haven't read it. It's a quick read. You could just read it. In one sitting, in bed tonight, it's great. But the picture of bitterness being restored to sweetness. But Mara, right? The wilderness, by the way, in Deuteronomy 8, this this wilderness is described as great and terrifying with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. So this is like an intense place. And what they don't know is they're going to be entering the wilderness. They're going to be there for 40 years. Which in itself is interesting because Moses lived in Midian, for 40 years prior to re-entering Egypt after his call by God and Midian is described as a wilderness. So now Israel is about to enter the wilderness for another 40 and Moses is with them and drawing another parallel, uh, Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days and nights right after his baptism and I think there's some very clear parallels happening there. To be tempted by the devil but without sin. But here we're going to see Israel tempted by the devil and indeed sinning Says, and the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So that log can also be translated tree, but this… There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there He tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His his eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. The Lord is the healer. I think that's something worth just, just sitting on and pondering. The Lord is the healer. He brought about judgment on Egypt in order to free Israel, His son, and he is saying, I am the healer, but listen to me, listen to me. And so just pausing and considering, Egypt just got, uh, Israel just got delivered from Egypt through these miraculous plagues um, and then was led through, literally through the sea, through a sea, um, miraculously, and now immediately are like grumbling, what shall we drink? And there's a sense of discontent that we'll see magnified and coming up again and again. Uh, and we're going to see that God is going to test His people, but test is not messing with people, right? God doesn't me- mess with people. Scripture says He doesn't tempt people. Like, God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But James tells us, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Uh, so, there's going to be this sense of testing, and Israel is going to be… going to grumble, and we'll get, we're going to tragically see them fail the test. Now, we in the, 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 the part of the narrative we're going to be entering into, there's also some really interesting stuff that's happening that I believe, just like these different pointers to Christ, there's a, uh, like this image of a serpent that's going to be raised that Jesus actually draws a parallel in terms of his own life. There's kind of a, a rock that's going to be struck that water is going to flow from. And I think this tree here, or this log being thrown into the water, I think that too is like this, this beautiful picture, almost like a mini, mini parable, a mini, mini analogy for Christ because there's this bitter water and this log, this tree, which recall that Jesus was crucified on a tree, right, on, uh, on wood, that it's thrown into the water and the water, the bitter water becomes sweet, becomes drinkable, becomes like life-giving for them. So I think that's something that you're going to be seeing throughout, throughout the narrative as, you, as we go on. And then, verse 27, then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So something really interesting, you think about it, it's like there's this test of sorts, like they're like, we need water, like they're grumbling, and then the Lord provides for them in that way, which, to be clear, no, like, there's no, you know, Scripture doesn't censor them or like, doesn't condemn them because it, for like earnestly crying out to God and praying, right? They earnestly cried out to God when they were in Egypt. Moses cries out to God, right? There's an earnestness, but there's a difference between that and grumbling or saying, hey, we had it way better in Egypt or like, why have you dragged us out here to die? Like there's, it's a different attitude. It's like a different uh, uh, stance of the heart in bringing something before God, being like, hey, I'm, I'm thirsty, please help me. Like there's a big difference between that and like I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. You know, I've I my little boy. I just think of the difference when he's like, "Hey, can I have some water?" Like, of course. Like, oh, I'm so thirsty. Like, of course, I'm happy to give him water. But when he's like, "Hey, Dad, get me some water." He has. I don't know if he's ever said it quite like that. Or just thrust a cup. Water. Um, it's like, okay, there's there's a problem here. That's not how you talk to me. <laughs> I'm your dad, and I love you. And there's even like an impugning. You see this like Israel. There's this impugning of God's character, as we'll see later when they really like when they really just like go off full vent, where they're just like, oh man, it was better in Egypt. There's just a sense of like a total lack, lack of trust in God's character. And it's easy for us to look back at ancient Israel and be like, look at all the ways they blew it. But man, like how much is that oftentimes, the the, do I have the propensity to fall into that? How often do I do that? Another thing I just think is, is just a beautiful thing for us to remember is that, man, they went through this they they're like oh there's no water they grumble the lord provides water and then they reach this oasis and man so many times in my life i see this i'll, I'll be in a situation and it feels to my mind it seems dire and i interpret the cir- circumstances my way i become the interpreter of my own life and lo and behold the lord provides for me and it's a beautiful ending and it's like more more wonderful than i could have could have asked for in whatever situation it is right and yet in the moment it felt very t- tempting to, s- to interpret the circumstances my way, um, which is like despair, right? And despair is, whenever you kind of give in to despair, you are in essence saying, I know how this ends. Like, I know, I know the, the end from the beginning, and that's, that's not true. I, I really don't know. Um, when it comes to just hope or despair in myself, I don't know what the future is, but God does. And in looking to Him, we find oftentimes He opens up a way like before the Red Sea, opens up a way that I I wouldn't have thought that to do because it's impossible for me, but all things are possible with God. Lord, I just want to thank you for everybody here, and Lord, the ways in which as we press into your word, we can understand more and more who you are and your goodness. We thank you for that, and I just pray as we continue to press into your word and just following you that you would expand our minds and hearts to understand your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody.